Thank you for joining me in that prayer. Uh, we have been going through this series called Jesus Went, and tonight we are reaching a climactic point in Jesus' life. We're following Jesus through his journey all the way to the cross, and tonight we get to the cross. We meet Jesus at the cross. All of Jesus' life, all of scripture, all of human history, I believe, meets at the cross. It's where Jesus went. It's where he was determined to get. And it's interesting, our fingerprints are all over this scene. Whether we like to admit that or not. I want to start tonight by giving a public confession. So in my uh, apartment building, my wife and I, Abby, we live, in a, uh, we live in an apartment complex and there's a clubhouse. And in the clubhouse, there is a section that is, uh, uh, that is dedicated to giving the residents snacks. So you can go in there, you can pick up snacks. And when we moved in there a few months ago, I felt great about that. And so every single day I'd stop by and I'd grab a snack. But the problem is there is a huge variety of snacks in the snack section of the clubhouse. And when there's a huge variety of the snack section, how can you choose just one? You can't. And so at least once a week, I'd be walking out of the clubhouse with a grocery-sized bag of snacks. I'd come home, and my wife would ask me, what, like, what'd you go to the grocery store for? I didn't. Aren't I a great husband? I brought you food. I've gathered. It's pathetic. <laughs> but she loves me anyway, and she, you know, enjoyed it too. And, you know, it's like you got the Reese's, you got the Kit Kats, you got to wash it down with something. So you grab something out of the fridge, you bring it home. I did this week in, week out, week in, week out, until one day I show up in the clubhouse and I see this bright yellow sign that says one snack per resident, please. And immediately I'm just riddled with guilt. I look over at the person sitting at the front desk and I'm like, I'm responsible. I, like, I've done this. I'm so sorry. And like, am I the only one? Probably not. I think in our complex, there's like 500 people who live there or something. So I'm sure I'm not the only one. But certainly, I played a role in why now our clubhouse, at least this section of the clubhouse, is covered in bright yellow signs. I'm responsible. And I say that, first off, because public confession is good. I don't know if my landlord watches this. Probably not, but I maybe should report this to them. I, I, I've sinned. I'm sorry. But also because as I reflect on my role and why there are bright yellow warning signs all over our clubhouse, I'm reminded of my responsibility. I'm reminded of one of the key ideas in the Christian understanding of existence. One of the key themes in all of scripture shows up in a verse in Romans chapter 3, and it says this, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus. Sometimes we want to skip that first part, don't we? And get immediately to the God's grace. God's grace is there for you no matter what. So you can spend time with the sin. You can spend time admitting the sin. You can spend time confessing the sin. You can spend time acknowledging your mistakes because God's grace is there no matter what. It's not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done for us that makes us right in God's sight. So with that in mind, that from the starting place, we can go back to the everyone has sinned. And we don't like to talk about it. 
it makes us feel uncomfortable because guilt is awkward. It makes us feel weird. We don't like to admit it. No one does. And no matter how big or powerful you get, sometimes you feel like there are certain things you have to hide about yourself. Long ago, when Jesus was on his journey to the cross, he encountered a man known, by, known as Pontius Pilate, who's a Roman governor. We don't know a whole lot about him other than the fact that he was an official appointed by the Roman government to serve to oversee the citizens of this area in the empire of Rome. What else we know about him is that he hated his job. He does not seem like he likes where he lived. And he hated Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish man. And his contemporaries, his peers, were Jewish people as well. It seems as if Pontius Pilate was only passing by time so he could get a promotion in the Roman government so he could just leave this place. And Jesus meets him. Pontius Pilate would have had a lot of people stand before him in trial, and right in front of him, he would be able to say to that person, you get to live or you get to die. In the palm of his hand, he held anybody's life. And now there's this man, Jesus, in front of him. Long story short, the religious establishment hated Jesus because he was disrupting their power. He was saying things about God that threatened their ability to control everyone else. They were scaring people with God, and Jesus was giving people the love of God. And so the Jewish establishment, the religious officials, didn't like Jesus. And so they start to cozy up to Pontius Pilate on behalf of the Roman government so that they can work with the Roman government to remove Jesus from the situation. Jesus appears before Pilate, and Pilate's very confused. It's clear to him, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, there's this kind of interesting dialogue that takes place before Pontius Pilate and the crowd as they're trying to get Jesus killed. The crowd says to Pontius Pilate, crucify him. And Pilate says, why? What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him, but they don't have a reason. Just kill him, get him out of the way. Mind you, this is the same crowd that just days before welcomed Jesus into their city, glorifying him, praising him, calling him Messiah, deliverer, savior, honoring him. And very quickly they turned on him. Of course, Pilate's going to be so confused by that. What did he do wrong? Isn't this the same guy that you were just waving your palms in the air for? Isn't that him? Pilate seems to almost be internally disturbed by Jesus. It tells us in the Bible, the word that it's used in Greek literally means he's amazed by Jesus. People stand before Pilate and he can send them into life or into death. And so people would stand before Pilate, they'd get down on their knees, please let me live, please don't kill me, I beg of you, do anything to me but kill me. But Pontius Pilate talks to Jesus and the Bible tells us that Jesus is quiet. And it strikes Pilate like he's never been struck before. It's almost as if Jesus is determined to get to the cross. It's like a marathon runner where they're hurting, they're broken, but they won't stop until the finish line. Pilate is moved by this. But as we move forward in the story, it tells us that Pilate saw that he was making no progress whatsoever with the mob. And so instead, he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands symbolically. 
to say, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. Pilate is making an excuse. He knew what was right. He knew Jesus was innocent. But it didn't matter. He was more concerned with what the people thought than the innocence of the Son of God. He makes an excuse. And we do it too. It's so easy to make an excuse. It's so easy to try to just cover up our sin. To exaggerate the truth about our mistakes. There's some psychologists out there who are calling this an epidemic of infallibility. We're afraid to admit our mistakes. There's one doctor in particular, he talked about three different reasons why we can't admit our mistakes. The first one is we don't value the truth. Instead of the truth, we value our bias. And so even though the truth might be coming our way, we will sway ourselves however we have to, to be convinced of our bias. Whatever it takes. We also start to believe that it makes us look stronger if we never admit that we made a mistake. A mistake must mean that I'm weak. Now the irony of this is that refusing to ever admit that you ever make a mistake doesn't only make you weak, but it also makes you completely unbelievable and insincere. Imagine if you work for someone, or imagine if you're following someone who says, I never mess up. Yes, you do. Imagine if you're trying to, if you're trying to work for somebody, if you're, if you're starting on your first day of your job someday and they say, now, all right, I want you to follow my lead because I'm perfect. That's really hard to follow someone like that because they're clearly lying about their infallibility. So what else are they going to lie about? I think it's a lot easier to follow someone, be friends with someone who would say, you know, I try my best, but sometimes I do mess up. We don't value the truth. Instead, we value our bias. We, don't, we believe that it's going to make us look weak if we admit our mistakes. And then finally, our mistakes, we believe, make us unworthy. Don't you, don't you think that it's interesting that when someone else screws up, we're so harsh on them? I mean, think about when big figures, right? When they mess up. We're so quick to try to dismiss them from society. But it happens in our personal lives, too. Maybe somebody does something that's pretty small, but for whatever reason, you blow up on them and you can't quite explain why. The reason is because deep down, we believe that's what we deserve. We believe that if we cannot help but make mistakes, we also cannot be saved from our mistakes. And so we make up excuses for our mistakes. We're late for the meeting and we come up with this big whopper of a lie. Oh, well, you know, I had a doctor's appointment, then a family emergency came up, and I saved three dogs. You know, it's a lot more believable and a lot more honorable just to say, I overslept. It's a lot easier to be that person's friend. but we have to have sympathy for people who make mistakes. We have to have sympathy for people who want to make excuses for their mistakes because we all make excuses and we all make mistakes. And it's not like we want to make excuses. Sometimes we believe that what we've done is right. But again, we're swayed by our bias. And so we tell ourselves, no, 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 clearly I did the right thing. 
but it's an exhausting way to live. And it absolutely messes with the way that we see the rest of the world, and it messes with the way that we see ourselves. So this Dr. Tim Sharp, he talks about how these three things, they don't only force us into making more, uh, into making more excuses, but they actually start to control us. It's almost as if we are enslaved to it. Jesus actually says this as well. What he goes on to say in the John chapter 8, he says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. What does he mean by that? Think about how this works. I mean, everything's connected. It's kind of weird like that. And Jesus, I think, is pointing it out here. Imagine that you're just a person who makes one mistake every single day. And depending on where you are in the auditorium or if you're watching online, you might not even be able to make out what I just made on the board here, but it's a red X. Now, obviously, that's very generous to say, well, you make one mistake every single day, right? But how many people are on the planet? I think as of this morning when I looked, I think it was like 7.8 billion. So what if every single person makes one mistake every single day? Starts to add up quickly. And it's big. We're not the only ones. Everybody's a part of it but we're in there. And sometimes there's comfort in a crowd, knowing, well, I'm not the only one who messed up. But if I didn't, it'd be a little cleaner. It starts to get heavier. It starts to get bigger. And what started off as just one mistake that I thought that I could hide turns into this big, massive monster that I'm afraid of. And it's connected, right? You, you've got a friend who's dealing with some anger issues. And that doesn't just impact that friend, right? No, of course not. It impacts another friend who then takes out on another friend, who then takes out on another friend, and then another friend, and another friend. You've got a parent who was um, abandoned as a child. They were influenced. They then influenced, and they then influenced, and they then influenced, and it's all connected. None of us want to sin. But eventually, the sin just grows into something that's completely out of control. And we can't even help ourselves. It's this monster Jesus is telling us everyone who sins is a slave of sin. What is it? It's like sin has this ability to grip onto us and lie to us. Jesus says a slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is a part of the family forever. Sin grips onto us and starts to tell you that you are not a part of the family of God. You are a hired hand. God is your employer. God is your boss. God is not your parent. If you believe God's just your boss or your employer or your ruler, of course you will try to cover these things from God. Of course you'll try to cover these things from God because you'll believe that it's going to dismiss you. But if you believe that God loves you and that you are part of God's family, then you know, then you know, this cannot separate me from the love of God. 
And suddenly it changes our perspective. We don't feel this need and desire to make an excuse, but instead we have this need and desire to run to our heavenly, perfect, loving Father to say, here are the things that I'm carrying. Here are the things that I've been hiding. Will you please receive them? Take care of them. I am no match for these things. To our great surprise, he says yes. Jesus continues the verse, the teaching, when he says this, the truth is, so if the Son sets you free, and he's referring to himself, you are truly free. You are not free because you have found out some sort of formula or way to defeat sin on your own. You are not saved because you've done a good enough job of covering up your sin. You are not saved because you've found out how to deal with your sin. You are saved because the Son has set you free. So many of us believe that because of my sin, I'm an enemy of God. But if I work hard enough, then I can get on God's side. And it's not true. Sin is God's enemy. And just because we are enslaved to sin does not mean that we are God's enemy. The reason why sin is God's enemy is because sin has us. And God is defeating sin and killing sin so that we can belong and know that we belong to God. You are not God's enemy. Sin is God's enemy. And God is defeating sin. The son says you are a part of the family and therefore you are free. You don't have to live under the enslavement of sin. And the worst part about sin is sometimes we think I'm just doing sin, right? I'm just doing another thing. But Jesus tells us that when we sin, we become slaves to sin. It's not that we're doing sin. It's that sin starts to do us. Sin starts to enslave us. We're not owning the sin. Sin owns us. It drives us deeper into sin. I made a mistake and now I've got to lie about it. I've got to break another relationship. And Jesus is saying, be free of that. I've set you free. Jesus saves us from what is holding us captive. And oh, how important is it for us to remember Jesus saves us. He is in the business of saving us. If you believe that God loves you and God will save you because God cares for you, you don't have to be afraid of sin. I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm walking in fear. I'm so scared I'm going to mess up. I'm talking about being so afraid of sin that I've got all this stuff in my pockets, things that I'm trying to hide, and I can't let anybody see them. Here's, Here's what freedom looks like, okay? When I was in uh, high school, I was struggling with germophobia. I just like, I, I, I couldn't bear the thought of germs and bacteria touching my body because I was afraid of what I was going to contract. It continued throughout young adulthood. And the worst part is I couldn't even talk about it. If someone began to talk about uh, bacteria or uh, uh, some sort of like contagious illness, I just would, mm, I'm out of that conversation because it terrified me so much. It's like it was owning me. And listen, it wasn't, the moment that I became free from that, right, was not the moment when all of a sudden I no longer ever had to deal with that stuff anymore. Because that day has not come yet. I still wrestle with it and I still live with it. Do you know when I knew I was free from it? When I could talk about it. When I didn't have to hide from it. 
And so it is with sin. If you believe that you are only going to be free from sin when you stop sinning, you'll never be free. But when you have the ability to confess your sin before God, to admit your mistakes, and to be all right with that, it shows you're no longer afraid of it. It shows that you know that you're part of God's family and that you've been set free. Jesus saves us. We do not save ourselves. Jesus wants to be that kind of savior for us. So who's your savior? A great way to test that is to think, what could I not live without in my life? Who's your savior? What could you not live without in your life? Now here's a great way to test if your savior is worth being a savior. Savior is defined as something or someone that delivers you from danger. And a great way of seeing if something is worth being my savior is, does my savior need a savior? So I've got this shirt, right? And on the back it says, keep earth awesome. And it's got hands that are hugging the earth, right? And I, I bought the shirt because I thought that it had a good meaning. Like we shouldn't pollute creation that God has given us. Not only as humanity, but also just simply as Christians, as children of God, we should be taking care of the creation that God gave us, right? So like we're all in, we're all in the business of keeping earth awesome. Like we want to do that. And I like that. But it also points me to a deeper truth. I can only keep earth, for so, I can only keep earth awesome for so long. All of us in this room can only keep earth awesome for so long. But one day, the sun's going to burn out. And then earth will not be awesome. Boy, that took a dark twist, didn't it? One day, I'm not going to be able to keep earth awesome. Because the sun's going to burn out, and then the earth will not be that awesome of a place to be anymore. And so therefore, everything that is here in this earth needs a savior. Everything on this earth needs someone or something to deliver it from danger. This big danger that we don't even acknowledge sometimes is that our sun is burning up. But we have a God who's not from earth, but comes into earth to deliver us from dangers even deeper than a sun that's burning out. Jesus is the only one who is worth being our savior. Have you ever read the story of Jesus all the way through? I encourage you to do it. And when you do, I, I think you'll notice something. It's so hard not to get emotional when you read the story of Jesus all the way through. Because you see what he's like. You see his love. You see his forgiveness. What did he ever do besides love people and restore and heal and serve, give sight to the blind, ears to the deaf, family to the orphans? He generated and gave love freely. He was entirely innocent. Pilate knew it. He was always innocent. The Bible compares him to a lamb, an innocent lamb, having done nothing wrong. But while he generates and offers love, 
People misunderstand him and they hate him. They lie about him. They dismiss him. They reject him. They deceive his friends into turning on him. It's hard not to get emotional when you see the story of Jesus. In this innocent lamb, it wasn't enough just to say things about the lamb or say things to the lamb or dismiss the lamb. They began to beat the lamb and abuse the lamb. Strike the lamb in the face. They lead this lamb, this innocent lamb, to the slaughterhouse. And any observer who sees a story like this says, Stop it! What are you doing? This is wrong! He's innocent. He's, he's perfect. He's love personified. What are you doing? This same crowd who's praising Jesus and glorifying his name, they're saying, deliver us. They are now delivering him from their lives. They brutally, inhumanely, Abuse this lamb. And I'm reading the story and my heart starts to panic. It doesn't matter how many times I read this story. I know where it's going. I know what's going to happen. But when you read a beautiful story, you can't help yourself. You just scream, somebody save him. Jesus comes to save us, but what about him? I'm testing you now, Savior. Does my Savior need a Savior? What about him? Isn't someone going to do something? Isn't someone going to save him? Please. His mom is there seeing all of this. His mom. His mom is in the crowd and she's seeing her son, her innocent lamb, being destroyed. Whipping him, ripping the skin off of his body. This innocent lamb who's only ever had love to offer is being hated more than any humans ever hated anyone before. Get out of my life. I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. You say you've come to save me. Well, I'll kill you. This mother's watching her son. What are you doing to him? He hasn't done anything. Pilate even knows it. He hasn't done anything. I mean, my goodness, I can't even begin to conceive, to imagine what my own mother would do if she saw me in that situation. But I'm not Jesus. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And you read this story all the way through, and like, it starts to blow your mind. What? Why would they do this? Why would he stay silent? Pilate is saying, defend yourself. Beg for your life. But Jesus stays silent as if he refuses to do anything until he's killed on a cross. But then there's this other woman who speaks up just momentarily. It's just for a verse. It's Pilate's wife. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat before Jesus, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. He has done nothing wrong. 
You know this, Pilate. He has done nothing wrong. He has generated and offered love unconditionally. Save him. And I, 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 I sit here and I reflect. And I want to say that I'd be the brave one in the crowd to say, yeah, yeah, listen to what, listen to what Pilate's wife said. Listen to her. Please listen to her. I know where this story is going, but my heart screams because as I read the story of Jesus and I get to know Jesus and I see his character and I see his love, I say, this isn't right. You fall in love with Jesus. And when you love someone, you see them hurt, you see them break, you can't help yourself. But Pilate's wife can't save him. And I can't save him. And you can't save him either. Now, what if Pilate had listened to his wife? What if Jesus had been saved? What if Jesus saved himself? The crowd taunted him with it, you know. It says when Jesus was on the cross, people, just bystanders, I mean, he is dying on a cross. Public humiliation. They're murdering him. And his last impression of the earth is, we don't want you here. They're saying to him, look at you now. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down from that cross. What if he did it? What if he did it? What if he wasn't silent? What if he spoke up for himself? But my savior doesn't need a savior. I wanna tell myself I wouldn't be like one of the taunting mockers in the crowd saying, save yourself. But of course, they're not just saying, save yourself. They're saying, save yourself, be like me. I'm safe down here where I am. And then we realize I'm not safe down here where I am. I'm tangled up in this mess. And I'm controlled. And I don't want to make any more mistakes, but I can't help it because it's all connected. And someone's mistake influences my mistake and influences somebody else's mistake. And I have to lie about my mistake and they lie about theirs. And then we have this break in relationship and it's a mess of a world and we're all enslaved to it and I can't do anything about it. It's not safe here. Pilate's wife couldn't save Jesus because she wasn't safe. We can't save Jesus because we aren't safe. Jesus' own mother couldn't save Jesus because she wasn't safe. The only one who was safe, it's amazing, the only one who was safe was the only one who was so captivated by his father's love, so mesmerized by his father's acceptance, by his father's pleasure, by his father's riches and promises. That he was not a slave to sin. But he knew who he was. Secure. Safe. In the family of God. And when everybody else dismissed him. And threw him out to what we believed was the most dangerous place of all. 
God's still safe. Our Savior doesn't need a Savior. Our Savior does the saving. And he chooses to save us from his enemy, our sin, our death. And although we stand on the side of sin and death so often, we are not God's enemies. God defeats our enemy to bring us back to his side as if our hands could touch again. Jesus did not need a savior. Jesus could not be saved by anyone else because he didn't need to be saved by anyone else. And so he was destroyed for you and for me so that we could be in the family of God so that we could be safe not so that we would stop ourselves from sinning every single day but that we wouldn't be afraid of the enemy of sin that we could come before our loving perfect father because of his loving, perfect son. And we would say, take this, take it. I confess, I want you, I want you. You are my savior, no one else can save me. You are the only savior who doesn't need a savior. We couldn't save Jesus because Jesus didn't need to be saved. So he was destroyed to save us. Receive this gift. Know that you are loved. Know that you are saved. And you are safe with God. Amen.